the, the, book, the book I just did a review on about um, pre-mill, pre-trib that, was, that came out of the Master Seminary. Um, that's really Dick Mayhew's book, <laughs> not MacArthur's. I mean, MacArthur's name's on it. And he contributed a couple of chapters, but Mayhew was the guy who did most of the work, and then a few others contributed chapters here and there. Right. That, that's right. That's right. And in fact, the uh, one, the, the other, you know, there was, I would say, two main contributors, uh, Mayhew and a guy named Block. And uh, he is now a theology professor at Shepherds in, in uh, Cary. And uh, so he moved out this way. So. And I think last year, or maybe this year, is his first full year there. So, well, let's go ahead and get started. We are on um, lesson 19. There should have been notes in the back there. <coughs> and uh, we're still having trouble with. Uh, are streaming, the, the, the uh, video shows up, but the audio does not, so we're still videoing it, so we at least the, we'll have the video out there and we're recording it on another system, and so we'll have the audio out there, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, Mark Dow will be able to put those together. He's, he's done that before for us. And he knows how to work all that stuff, and I'm glad somebody does. And uh, so that's a blessing to have that. But uh, we're still doing our same old thing, even though it's not working right. And um, we're going to have uh, someone here, hopefully, next week to take a look at it to see if there's something um, minor in the sense of not too expensive. Because the little box back there that okay, I, I can't do anything about that. Uh, I just let it run. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, but the little box back there that connects all the streaming and video and audio stuff together. It's almost a thousand dollars, so we don't want it, and it's it's not that old, <laughs> so we don't want to replace that if we don't have to. Hoping it's like a wire or something, or, or you know, you got to jiggle it just right or something like that. But uh, nothing, nothing we've tried to work so far. So let's pray, and we'll jump right into our uh, lesson for tonight. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy on us. And uh, Lord, we just commit our time to you. And as we look at your word, uh, we pray that we would have understanding. We're so thankful that you have communicated to us. You have had your, your word written down and uh, we can understand it. We can read it and understand it. We uh, can look at even Hebrew and Aramaic, and we can know what it says. 
And so we give you thanks for that. We ask that you would be with us here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me let me uh, get that off there. <laughs> I sent out an email earlier to everybody on the email list that we're not going to have a good uh, video tonight. But oh well. Well, praise the Lord. Um, I'll talk a little bit about this on Sunday, but. Uh, as I was praying there, I just was reminded when we think about the scriptures and what is scripture and the passage we're going to be looking at in First Timothy on Sunday morning, uh, five, chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul quotes from Deuteronomy and he quotes from the Gospels. And he says... It is written, it is written, or it's in the scriptures, then you get both of these quotations together, which I find very interesting because Paul in 63, 64 AD is treating the sayings of Jesus with the same authority as the Old Testament. So that's pretty significant. And um, so we, we have God's authoritative word. So let's look at this. We're in chapter 17 of 2 uh, Kings, 2 Kings chapter 17. And we're looking at the king, Hosea. And let me give you his just basic information there, what we normally do. So his, his uh, reigning dates are going to be 732 to 722. 732 to 722, he's going to reign nine years. And you might look at that and say, uh, Pastor, okay. And we know you don't have a math degree, but that looks like 10 years. Well, you have to remember how they counted. Sometimes you get a year variance here and there. But most scholars agree with what you see there on the screen that those are the dates. And he only reigned nine years because of uh, what it says in the, the scriptures here. And uh, so the, basically his reign is going to cover all of chapter 17. So we got a good bit to get through. And then I got a little bit extra at the end. We're only going to look at this king. We're just, just going to look at this one king here. So um, the most significant thing about Hosea is going to be that he is the last king of Israel. He is the last king of Israel. So let's get his basic description here. His name, Hosea, means salvation. So it's spelled H-O-S-H-E-A. And it's also spelled without the H, like the prophet Hosea. And it's also spelled, we would put a J instead of an H on it, so it's Joshua. So those names are all the same. Hosea with either S or SH and Joshua, it's all the same. 
And of course, we know that that comes over into the New Testament as Jesus, as Jesus uh, in Greek. So that's his name. Uh, we also see in verse 1 the relationship that he had to Judah. He was, he's becomes king in the 12th year of Ahaz. So uh, he becomes king almost in the middle of Ahaz's reign. And he is the son of Allah. And what we want to notice about that is that means he's not a direct descendant or not a descendant at all of the previous king who was Pekah. Pekah, son of Ramaliah. And so they're not related. And of course, if you look back at chapter uh, 15, verse 30, you can kind of see how they're not related because Hosea, the son of Allah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of uh, Remaliah, and struck him and put him to death and became king in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. So, um, you know, he killed the previous king. That's how he, there's an assassination. So that's his father is Allah and his capital, of course, is Samaria. And he takes the throne by assassination. And now, as we move to verse 2, we see his spiritual condition. And uh, he's wicked. He's a wicked king. But notice the uh, last part of verse 2. It says, only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So something different about his wickedness than the other kings before him. And uh, we notice there's an absence of it saying that he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, leading Israel in sin. So that's missing from this. So um, maybe he wasn't as wicked as those other kings. I mean, really, the, the significance of his reign is going to be he's the last one. He's the last king, king of Israel. And so we're going to see in this chapter, there's going to be what I'm calling two invasions of a, uh, by Assyria. And so we're going to look at the first invasion in chapter th or verse 3, and it says, Shalmaneser, that's how you say that name, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hosea became his servant and paid him tribute. Now, who's the, who is the last king of Assyria who was mentioned. I gave him a nickname. TP3. TP3, Tiglath-Pileser III. So he's the last one uh, that we saw mentioned. And uh, he's, he's mentioned all back through the... Um, chapter 16 and 15. We're not going to review... Um, that, but it was, it was TP3, Tiglath-Pileser, who was the king of Assyria when Hosea became king of Israel. And what seems to be the case there is that it was at that time that Israel really became a vassal state uh, to Assyria. 
And so they were going to be always in subjection uh, to Assyria and either uh, Tiglath-Pileser put Hosea on the throne or he allowed Hosea to take the throne. He had something uh, to do with it. And so his, uh, Tiglath-Pileser's dates for his reign go from 745 to 727. Our king that's mentioned here, Shalmaneser, this is Shalmaneser V. So this is Shal, that's, so that's a royal name. You know, it's like you got King George, whatever, uh, King Edward, whatever, Queen Elizabeth, and all this stuff, and they got these numbers after. Because that's not their name, that's their royal name. Um, and so... This is what's happening here. Sort of like the Pope, you know, when the Pope becomes the Pope, he gets a Pope name. You know, that's not his, you know, Pope whatever. That's not his real name. He chooses a Pope name. Shalmaneser is sort of like that as well. So this is Shalmaneser V. He's going to reign from 727 to 722. 727 to 722. Um, and you might wonder, how do we know the reigning dates for all these Assyrian kings? The reason we know them is that the Assyrians were very particular in keeping the records of their kings. And so there's an Assyrian kings list. And so they've recorded all of that. Beyond that... Um, in the ancient world, I don't think anybody can actually match the amount of literature produced by the Assyrians. They produced a, the, our Bibles. Think about the Hebrew writings. Our Bibles are a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of writings that the Assyrians produced. But they didn't write on paper. They wrote on clay tablets. Um, maybe, maybe about twice as big as my phone here. You could hold it in your hand. And the way they wrote is not like what we write today. They made impressions in that clay, and it looks like pointy things going in all different directions. And uh, so that's how they wrote. And uh, in the uh, British Museum, they have like 100,000 of these clay uh, tablets. Most of them, they have no idea what they say because, I mean, who in their right mind is going to do that? Look at all the, you have to, you got to dedicate your whole life to doing that. Takes you 15 years just to learn the language. So that's why we know all this information about uh, the Assyrians. And we'll take a little bit closer look at that when we get to Hezekiah with King Sennacherib because they record, uh, Sennacherib records the exact same event that Hezekiah is, is recorded as uh, doing in the Bible. It records the exact same event, but there's a little bit different in how they record it. But we'll take a look at that when we get there. So, so here's the king. It's Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. And uh, when we consider the time of this invasion, 
this invasion, the first invasion, probably took place soon after Shalmaneser took the throne. If we give him a year to consolidate his rule in Assyria, in Nineveh, um, that would allow him to move west in about uh, 726, about 726 uh, BC. And this would be the first invasion here, or first contact. Invasion might be a little bit too, too strong. But in verse 3 here, he comes to Israel and they pay him tribute. Now, when we move to verses 4 and 5, this would be the second, what I'm calling the second invasion or the second contact. And it took place a year after the first. So look at verse, uh, look at verse 4. How do, how do you know it took place a year after the first contact? It says, but the king of Assyria found conspiracy and Hosea, who had sent messengers to the king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So um, uh, Shalmaneser, or one of his emissaries, comes to Israel again and says, give me the money that you owe us for tribute. And the Assyrians figure out uh, that, you know what, they're not going to give us tribute because they did this deal with Egypt. The idea is that we're going to do a deal with Egypt and they will come help us resist Assyria. And because of the chronology, it's so close because Shalmaneser is only going to reign from 727 to 722. 722 is when Israel ceases to exist. So we don't have a whole lot of time there. And he's going to lay siege to Jerusalem for three years. So this is going to be after basically the second year that Hosea is supposed to give tribute. He doesn't. And uh, what happens to him is he gets put in jail. He gets put in jail and, and it says in verse 5, Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. So there's your three years. At the end of that three years is 722, the fall of Israel. So this is going to be the second invasion or the second contact. And so this, of course, leads to the destruction of Israel. And we see this recorded for us in verses 6 through 18. A lot of de we get a lot of details about this destruction and why. So let's look at, let's look at these. In verse 6, we see the event described for us. It says, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried away Israel into exile to Assyria, and settled them in Halah and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. So this conquering deportation, this is the end of Israel as a nation, as a kingdom, took place in Hosea's ninth year. So that's going to be 722 uh, B.C., uh, the siege of Samaria 
ends with it being captured and the Assyrians, you know, they enacted their foreign policy of what they do with captured people is where they will depopulate a region and then they're going to repopulate it. We'll see that. But they take most of the uh, country, certainly all the most important people of the country, and they take them and it says that they settled them in these other places. It says that they're settled in Hala, Habor, and on the river uh, Gozen, and in the cities of the Medes. Um, when you try to figure out where these places are, things get a little bit unsure. We're, we're not sure exactly where Hala is. And the phrase there, and Habor on the river of Gozen, we're not sure if that means the town of Habor on the river of Gozen or uh, Habor, the river of Gozen. <laughs> so, it's either the town is either Habor or the town is Gozen, and the other one's the river. I kind of go with the town as Gozen. Um, that's what it seems to make sense uh, to me. And the biggest thing to, for us to realize about this is that these two towns, as far as we can tell, now we know, there's a, we know where a town called Gozen is. We know that. It's way up north, the top, very top of Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, you know, where it, it well, from your all's direction, it circles around and goes towards Syria. We know it's way up there. Um, we, we know pretty precisely where that town is at. And what seems to have happened is that as Assyria that was taking Israel back home to their home, Along the way, they settled the Israelites, some of them at least, in other lands that they had already conquered. And uh, so that's what seems that, but of course they couldn't settle them all before they get back home because when they get back home, they got to have a big parade and they got to parade these conquered people through Nineveh. And uh, so they had to have enough people to make an impressive parade to do that. Here's these captured people, these people that we've conquered. And then the cities of the Medes are either going to be north, northeast, um, or to the east of Nineveh. That's where the Medes are from. Okay, so the cities of the Medes are going to be over in that direction. So uh, Israel's, uh, I mean, if you get the picture here, Israel's going to be scattered all over the Middle East, basically. Now, in verses 7 through 17... We see the reasons for the destruction. Why did God have the Assyrians um, destroy or take Israel? So here, there's at least 20 counts on the indictment sheet. This is like the this is the uh, charge sheet against Israel that we have here, uh, verses 7 through 17. I'm not going to read them all. But I'm just going to run down through the list that I have of the different charges. And, and you can go back and you can read all of those and you might find one 
or two more than I've gotten, but in verse 7, it says that they sinned against the Lord. They feared other gods. In verse 8, it says they walked in the customs of the nations who occupied the promised land before them. Also in verse 8, it says they walked in the way of the wicked kings of Israel. Verse 9, they snuck around hiding their wickedness. Uh, also in verse 9, they built high places. In verse 10, they set up uh, mitzvah oaths, standing stones, and ash terrain. So these are articles of false uh, worship. Um, an, an ashtarim, again, as we've said, that's the plural of ashtarah the, in Hebrew, the im ending. When you hear that im, that means plural. Um, it's just a, it's a totem pole. I, I, that's the best analogy that I can bring to it. It's a totem pole. And, but they were used for false worships, and they set them up all over the place. In verse 11, we see that they burnt incense on these high places like the other nations. And when it says that, I take that to mean not that they, um, not that they only used the pagan practices of false worship when they burnt this incense, but they actually participated in the worship of false gods as well when they did it. Um, I could be wrong about that, but that's what it seems to be to me. Um, also in verse 11, it says they provoked the Lord. It's going to say that again, but it makes a point. They provoked the Lord. Uh, verse 12, they served idols as an act of direct disobedience to what the Lord had commanded. Verse 13, they ignored the warnings of the Lord. Verse 14, they wouldn't listen to the Lord. They stiffened their neck. They did not believe the Lord. Verse 15, they rejected the Mosaic Covenant and the Lord's warnings in it. They followed after vanity, empty things, meaningless things, things that weren't real. Uh, they followed after the nations in a direct disobedience to what the Lord had said. Verse 17, they sacrificed their children as burnt offerings. They practiced divination, enchantment, so they were into sorcery and witchcraft. And it says they gave themselves over to doing evil. Now think about that. Think about that phrase in verse 17. Uh, in the New American Standard, it says they sold themselves to do evil. They gave themselves over to doing evil. What's that sound like in the New Testament? Being given over to sin. Yeah, but where is that? Romans chapter 1, right? In Romans chapter 1, what we see happen there is people reject God and they give themselves over to sin and then God gives them over. To, he lets them, it's sort of like he takes the, the he takes uh, the chains off. So the, the, what was restraining them is no longer restraining them when it comes to sin. And they just go deeper and deeper into sin. We sort of get that same picture of what's happening to Israel here. And you get to verse 18 and you see the result. So the Lord was very angry with Israel. And get it. He and removed them and he removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. Now, the tribe Benjamin is with Judah, but it's so small, 
it doesn't get mentioned. We just, when we read Judah here, we understand that Benjamin is included uh, with it. By the way, that's not, um, <clears throat> that's not strange, weird, or awkward in the Old Testament. Um, what's important with the tribes in the Old Testament is that there's always 12. There's always 12 tribes. Okay, so when you look at the tribes, you're always going to get the number 12 when you count them up. But um, in, some, in some places, what you have is the sons of Joseph mentioned, Ephraim, and Manasseh. Now, what's that mean? It means two other tribes have got to drop out, right? Of course, Joseph is one of those. What's the other one that's usually dropped out? Levi. Levi, because they're totally, they're treated as a total, almost a total separate entity. Uh, they, they, they aren't counted. They don't go to war. They're, they have their responsibilities in worship, and that excludes them from other things. So anyway, that's, a, that's kind of a sad note. So, but you see that the Lord has removed them from his sight. Now, that's going to be important. We're going to come back to that later. Um, as we get into verses 19 and 20, we see that here's a warning to Judah. Judah's warned. In verse 19, we see that Judah is actually no better than Israel. It says, also, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. So they're no better. They're no better. You might wonder, well, why, why isn't Judah being dealt with in the same way as Israel if they're no better? Well, when, you, when we read on here a little bit more, you know, what, what we see is that God was warning and warning and warning Israel over and over and over again. And except for a couple of kings who had a glimmer of goodness in them, all their kings were wicked and God kept warning them giving them a chance to repent and return to him, and they kept on ignoring, ignoring, ignoring. The same thing has not happened exactly in Judah. There's been some good kings that are leading the nation in what is right, but as a whole, they're still following in the same path that Israel. Verse 20 says, The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. And then as we get to verses 21 through 23, verses 21 through 23, we have a summary. This is just a summary of what's happening. It says, when he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. So that goes all the way back to the beginning of the divided kingdoms. Okay, so this is covering a lot of history in these just three verses here. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from the Lord, understood, um, from follow, or excuse me, from following the Lord, and he made them commit a great sin. The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel northern nation, from his sight as he spoke through all his servants 
the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. Whatever this was written down. They were, they were still considered in exile. The, in other words, the book of First and Second Kings, they go together, was written before any of the uh, post-exilic returns. They're still scattered. I think that's part of what he's talking about here. Okay, so now let's look at the results to the land. Now, because of this deportation, God getting Israel out of the land, let's look at the, what happens to the land, the results to the land here. Um, in verse 24, we see that it's repopulated. Uh, the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha, or just Kuth, and from Ava, or Eva, I-V-V-A-H is another way to spell that, from Hamath and from Sepharaim, and settled them in the cities of Samaria in the place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. Now, we've talked about the effect of what that has done all the way up to the time of Christ, where you have the Samaritans, right? So we don't need to, we don't need to rehash that, but we can, we can recognize where all these people, these are a bunch of different people groups. So you have Babylon, you have Kutha, which is about 30 miles north of Babylon. Um, mixed in with those two, the people from Babylon, not all of them were from southern Mesopotamia. There were some Arameans who had moved into that area. And so it's all mixed up as far as their ethnic descendants. Um, Ava is probably a Syrian city. Hamath is definitely a Syrian city. In fact, it was a Syrian city that uh, Solomon at one time had control of. And we've even seen how Israel had some control over that city. Then the final, the final place is Sephar uh, Varim. And um, this, is, this is the idea of two towns. Two towns on a river, one on one side of the river, one on the other side of the river. The one town is Akkad, and uh, I can't remember what the other town is on the other side of the river. But from those, you know, it's uh, oh, yes. <laughs> what are they? St. Paul in Minneapolis. Okay, what's what's that? Uh, right, yeah, so there's another twin city. So, um, you know, so this is the idea. So this, two cities are viewed as one for the purposes of what we have here. And, and so these people are all brought in. And, of course, when they came, what do you think they brought with them? Their own gods. Their own gods. So... In verse 25, we see that they're going to be rebuked by the Lord. It says, At the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they had, uh, there was this, the lions' population increased, yeah, and the lions started killing people. So they had a problem. And uh, there is a very straightforward solution to this problem in their minds. 
So they thought it was a common sense solution. Look at verse 26. So they spoke to the king, these people who had settled the land, they spoke to the king of Assyria saying, the nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them. Behold, they kill them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. So they, they're saying, hey, the problem is we don't know how to appease the God of this particular land. They have their gods that are attached to their particular land, but they don't know the God of Israel. And, that, you know, we're getting killed by these lions. He must be mad. We need to appease him. We don't know anything about him. And so then you get verse 27. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, take there one of the priests. So this is an ingenious solution. They don't know the God. So what do we do? Get a priest, one of the priests from there, and send him back to teach him about the God of the land. Uh, take there one of the priests whom you carried away in exile and let him go and live there and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they carried away in exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So what we're going to find here is that uh, the Lord, when he's making these people accountable to him, they're obviously accountable to him. He's displeased with them. He also gives them information about himself. This is how he did it here. Uh, a priest got sent back, and the priest says, here's who the God of this land is, and this is what he requires. Well, in that time, anything bad that happened was often explained as we've made the gods mad. So that's why you have gods of rain, and usually the god of rain, the god of fertility is the same god. And so if, it's, if there's a drought, ah, we haven't made the right sacrifices or enough sacrifices to the god of rain. He's mad. He's not sending any rain. So that would be the same kind of thing here. These lines are coming out of nowhere. Where did they come from? They're coming, killing us. We can't stop them. We must have made the gods mad. Um, so that was, that's generally the thought there. Um, when we look at verses 29 through 31, we see that these new residents, even though they have a priest there teaching them to fear the Lord, they still do whatever they want. It says in verse 29, but every nation still, they still made gods of their own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made. Every nation in their cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon, and then it goes through these gods. And by the way, it's, uh, if you, from verse 30 to 31, it's an interesting study to go back and look at all these gods. You can, you can find more information about these gods. We don't have time to do that. But you can see how these gods are connected to these different areas. Um, so I'll, I'll let you do that on your own. But it mentions all the particular gods of the particular homeland that these people are from. Then verse 32. It's an interesting phrase here. They also feared the Lord 
and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. Now, what's that sound like in the New Testament, book of Acts? Worshipped all these other gods. Right, he's just one of the gods. So, Acts chapter 17, the, the uh, altar to the unknown god. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's how they're treating God. Well, he's God. He's a God. He's just one of the many gods. And uh, so they, they were still doing whatever they want. Verse 33, they feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. So their homeland. They just followed the gods of their homeland. Then in verses 34 through 41, we see the real impact um, on the land here. It says, to this day, they do according to their earlier customs. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow the statutes or the ordinances of the law or the commandments which the Lord commanded the sons of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord made a covenant and commanded them, saying, you shall not fear other gods or bow down yourselves to serve them or sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, and to him you shall bow yourself down, and to him you shall sacrifice. The statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall observe to do forever. You shall not fear other gods. The covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods, but the Lord... Your God, you shall fear. Are you picking up a theme here? <laughs> he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, they did not listen. They did according to their earlier custom. So while the nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols, their children likewise, and their grandchildren to their, uh, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. By the way, this lets us know why when Ezra and Nehemiah go back to the land, part of the problem that they had, so there were a bunch of pagans in there. It's a bunch of pagans had taken over the place. Okay. Now, so we got through Hosea. That's pretty good. So we got about 17 more minutes here. So I now I want to take a, a look at some other scriptures here that are connected. Okay, they're connected. So I want you to just kind of keep a tab or something here because we'll, we'll probably be going back to chapter 17 here. But I want you to turn over to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. The first of the minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Hosea chapter 1. And uh, basically we're going to focus on verses 3, chapter 1, verse 3, down through chapter 2, verse 1. This is one of those places where the chapter divisions probably isn't the best. 
Now, however, before we get into those verses, I want to establish the time of Hosea's ministry. So let's look at verse 1. The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Biri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So Jeroboam, son of Joash, is Jeroboam number two. Um, Jeroboam number one is the son of Nebat. Okay? So we have kings of Judah mentioned and a king of Israel. So in reference to the kings of Judah, it begins with King Uzziah. So King Uzziah is going to reign from 792 to about 740. Okay, 792 to about 740. And it ends with King Hezekiah, who we haven't gotten to yet in our study. And he's going to reign from 729 to 686. So Hosea's ministry could have been up to just the time of the end of uh, the kingdom of Israel. But it also mentions King Jeroboam. So here's King Jeroboam II. Now he's going to reign from 793 to 753. Okay, 793, 753. So what we can make, what sense we can make out of this is basically Hosea's ministry. Notice it says the word of the Lord, which came to Hosea. So this is talking about his ministry, not his life. His ministry began with Uzziah and Jeroboam. Okay, very similar dates as far as when they started, started to reign. And um, it goes on through sometime, it ends sometime in King Hezekiah's reign. And, and so it's a, it's a long reign. So we see that there's a difference in the length of time as recorded by the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. It's a different amount of time. There's only one king of Israel and you have these kings of Judah. So why is that? Uh, at least that's the question I asked. Why, why is that? How do you make sense of that? Um, and I think there's two ways to understand it. First, if, if uh, Hosea would have written down all the kings from Jeroboam to the end of Israel, he's got to put six more kings in there. It's a lot of space. Okay, that's a lot of space. Um, secondly... I think that it wouldn't be incorrect for us to understand this as Hosea in his ministry had a ministry to Judah and to Israel and that those ministries pretty much just correspond with those kings. Something like that. Uh, we're not sure exactly what it is, but... Um, you know, it doesn't hurt us to think about, it doesn't hurt us to think about the differences there. So now let's look at the text. Let's look at our text here, starting in verse 3. It says here, so he, of course this is Hosea, took Gomer, 
the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So this is going to set the stage for the book, right? So this is setting up the stage of the analogy that's going to be drawn here between Hosea and Gomer and God and Israel. So Hosea is going to represent God and Gomer is going to represent Israel. Verse 4. And the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel. Okay, for yet a little while, and just stop right there. So here's the name of the son, the first son, Jezreel. Now, what do we know about Jezreel? Just that name. Not Jezebel, Jezreel. So there's a town named Jezreel. There's a valley named Jezreel. The name Jezreel means the Lord sows or the Lord plants. Keep that in the back of your mind. Brain housing group. Okay? The Lord plants. The Lord sows. Something like that. Um, keep going in verse 4. For yet a little while, and I will punish the house of who? What's it say? Jehu. The house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. So this is talking about the end of Jehu's dynasty. And remember, God had promised Jehu how many generations after him would sit on the throne? Four. Four generations after Jehu, four generations of his family would sit on the throne. Zechariah was the last of that, and he reigned for like six months. Okay. And when you think about the punishment for the house, uh, the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, think about when Jehu put to death the house of Omri. He killed Jezebel. Where was she at? Jezreel. <laughs> she was in Jezreel. So Ahab had, what, 70 sons, I think that's what, or 72 sons, 70 or 72 sons, whatever it is. Um, Jehu sends letters to him, twice, sends two letters to him. Finally, he says, meet me where? Jezreel. What'd he do? Killed them all in Jezreel, okay? You're starting to see a little bit of a connection here. All right. Um, keep going in verse 4. It says, I will punish the house of Jehu. Then it goes, I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. So we just jumped. We just jumped from the end of Jehu's reign to the end of Israel's reign. We just made a big jump right there. So this is 722 B.C. when he says, this is, I will do this. Now he's, the Lord, this is all prophecy. It hasn't happened. It's not reflecting back. This is saying what will happen in the future. I'm going to do this. Verse 5. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the where? 
Valley of Jezreel. So Israel will lose its military power in the Valley of Jezreel. So Jezreel is a significant location. So I'm going to feed you some questions that you should know the answers to. Just by, because I'm going to put basically the answer be obvious in the question. Where did Gideon defeat the uh, Midianites? Valley of Jezreel. Okay, I told you the answer's right here. All right. Um, Saul was defeated by the Philistines where? Valley of Jezreel. Ahab had one of his palaces where? Jezreel. I already told you, Jehu kills Jezebel and the family of Omri and Jezreel. What is the most, now this one might be a little bit harder. What is the most significant battle that will be fought in Jezreel? Armageddon. Because Jezreel is the valley of Megiddo. So Armageddon. So now isn't this interesting? I don't have too much longer to be real interesting. But you have this prophecy. A lot of emphasis is put on Jezreel. Bloodshed and things there. And here, this is where the nation ends. The nation of Israel ends. And this is where it's restored. This valley. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 6. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. So second child, first daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Ru-Hama. Nobody calls their kids that anymore. That name means no compassion. Lo in Hebrew is no. And uh, Ru-Ma, it means compassion or pity or something like that. No comp- I'm going to say compassion. No compassion. For, keep going, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would forever forgive them. That last phrase could be rendered, um, I will have no compassion on the house of Israel, and I will certainly take them away. I kind of lean that direction with this particular phrase. So the birth of this daughter symbolizes that the Lord will remove his compassion from the kingdom of Israel. He's going to take his compassion away. He's going going to withdraw himself from her. Um, Verse 7. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah. Israel gets defeated and destroyed. Judah still exists. I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. So even after Israel has been defeated, been destroyed, the Lord is still going to have compassion on the kingdom of Judah. And Judah is going to be delivered by the Lord, but not by military power. I think this is a reference to King Sennacherib and Hezekiah when 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are killed by the angel of the Lord in one night. 
Judah did not have the military power to beat Assyria, and they were delivered from the hand of the Assyrians by the Lord. I think that's what it's talking about. Verse 8, when she, Gomer, had weaned Loruhamah, and gave, uh, she conceived and gave birth to a son. So this is the third child, second son. Verse 9, and the Lord said, name him Loami. Lo, am, me, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So this kid is a symbol of how the Lord has disavowed the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, from being his people. And this is pictured in the separation that will happen between Gomer and Hosea. The Lord has put them out. He has put them away. Verse 10 says, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. So right now we're presented with a little bit of conundrum because it almost seems like he's reversing what he just said. He said he just put them out. They're not going to be my people. I'm not going to be their God. Oh, but they're going to be numberless. They're going to be countless. You can't count them. There's going to be so many of them. But it's not a reversal. It's, in fact, going to be connected to the promise of the restoration in the future. So the children of Israel will be numberless. Keep going in verse 10. And in the place where I said to them, in the place where I said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. So Israel is going to be called the sons of the living God in the place where the Lord disavowed them. This is Jezreel. This is where this is. This is the setting of the fulfillment of God bringing Israel and Judah back into the covenant relationship under the new covenant. Jezreel is where that happens. Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. Okay, Ezekiel 37. Uh, the place of the Battle of Armageddon. Ezekiel 38 and 39, Revelation 19, Isaiah 34, Jeremiah 31, 27. All this is connected to Jezreel. Jezreel, inescapable. Remember, Jezreel is, or means the Lord sows. The Lord sows. Verse 11. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. Okay, now we're way in the future, past our time now. The sons of Judah and sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. So the divided kingdoms will become the united kingdom with one ruler. Who's that ruler? The Messiah. Messiah. And uh, so the day of Jezreel is the day when the Lord sows or when the Lord plants. And I would, I would take that as, seems like he's talking about him planting them back in the land, right where he took them out at. Now, chapter, one verse, or chapter 2, verse 1. So say to your brothers, Ami, to your sisters, Ruhamah. So God tells them to say, my people, Ami, my people, and compassion, compassion. So the Lord will now be their God, and they will be his people. They will be the sons of the living God, and he will once again have compassion 
on them. So in this brief chapter, we see the destruction and restoration of Israel as pictured in the marriage of Hosea and Gomer. And that's basically what the book's about. Okay. In a nutshell, that's the book. Okay. Now, one minute over, but we can make it. Uh, go to Jeremiah chapter 31. And I want you to think about some of the same words that we've been hearing, both in 1 Kings and in Hosea. So Jeremiah 31, we'll start in verse 27. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 27. Says, verse 27, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow. Guess which word that is? It's related to Jezreel. I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. Verse 28, as I have washed over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster. Talking about discipline and destruction. So I will watch over them to build and to plant. That's a different word than Jezreel. That word plant there is a different word than Jezreel. Declares the Lord, but it's talking about restoration. So here in verse 28, we have discipline and we also have restoration. Verse 29, in those days, they will not say, um, what days? The days of discipline, the days of God's discipline on uh, Israel. They will not say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are on edge. That is a, those two phrases to get there are an expression of unfairness. It, it's sort of, it's an idiom. It's a Hebrew idiom to say unfair. The, our suffering is unjust and unfair. Verse 30. But instead of this unfairness, it's not unfair, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. So in other words, Jeremiah is defending the Lord's discipline, saying it is just. It isn't unjust. Uh, God's discipline of Israel in kicking them out of the land, spreading them like seed is just. Verse 31 Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Notice it's still divided, referred to in a divided way, but both of them are mentioned. Now, who's the new covenant with? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay? Um, that's who it's with. It's made with the united Kingdom. We've already heard the language of regathering, right? Verse 32. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. A husband. What was Hosea? He's a husband. (laughs) Uh, so a husband to them declares the Lord. So the new covenant is contrasted with the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was a conditional covenant. If Israel wanted to experience the blessings of the covenant, they had to obey the command. 
Verse 33, we're going to get a contrast here. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. Now it's united together. Uh, I take that as a united nation together. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Isn't that what Hosea just said? He starts out by saying, God's going to say, lo, ami. And then he's going to say, ami. After the discipline, he says, you are my people. So the new covenant involves an internal change instead of outward compliance to laws and commands. Instead of the covenant being written on stone and put in the ark, it's written on their hearts and placed in them. The contrast of the language here is, I will be their God and they will be my people. The Lord had rejected all the descendants of Israel and the Lord removed Israel from his sight. Now they are his people. Verse 34. They will not, uh, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying... Okay, this is what they're going to teach them. Know the Lord. They got to teach at that. He's saying that you're not going to have to teach each other to know the Lord. Why? For they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So because of the new covenant, the people of Israel will no longer need to be warned about sin and about returning to the Lord. They're all going to know the Lord. And I take that as having a personal relationship with the Lord. They're going to believe in the Lord. And why can they have that personal relationship with the Lord? Because the Lord is going to forgive their sins what he's going to do it's all in in the new covenant now don't turn there but i just want to read to you ezekiel chapter 37 verses 21 through 23 ezekiel chapter 37 verses 21 through 23 verse 21 say to them thus says the lord god behold i will take the sons of israel from among the nations where they have gone, where they've been scattered, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king on all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two nations. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with detestable things and with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. This is another reference to the new covenant. So the point that we see here is that even before the time of King Hosea of Israel, God had been warning both the northern and southern kingdoms about what he would do if they did not repent and turn back and follow him. 
But he also said that whatever discipline might come, no matter how bad it might seem, that this discipline was necessary and that he was not done with them. Once their discipline had been completed, he would restore them, but this restoration was going to be something new, something that wouldn't happen to them as much as it would happen in them. And there will be a time when all Israel will know the Lord. Paul says they will all be saved. That's how he puts it. Uh, this time when all Israel will know the Lord will be preceded by the times of the Gentiles. It will be, that will be a time when Israel will be oppressed and suppressed as a people. This time will be completed at the end of Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble, the seven-year tribulation. It is at this point when the regathering of Israel will take place, when they will be one nation with one ruler. Once this accomplishes, is accomplished, there will be a great battle in the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Megiddo, the Battle of Armageddon. And after this is accomplished, we'll have the restoration of Israel fulfilled as they're entering into the messianic, millennial, restored kingdom. All of that connects to 2 Kings chapter 17. It either connects as in Hosea, it's looking forward to it. In Jeremiah, it's looking back at it and talking about the future restoration. Ezekiel is the same thing. Ezekiel comes after. So it's pretty incredible that we see all of this here in the Bible. So next week, we're going to jump into uh, King Hezekiah. And he's going to be the next king of Judah that we look at. And we'll, we'll keep on rolling from there. So let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we give you thanks for this time that we've had together. We're so thankful for your word and the certainty of it. Uh, Lord, just give us confidence in knowing that you're accomplishing your work and your plan. And that you are a gracious and a compassionate God. And as bad as things might ever seem for Israel today... We know that they are going through a time of discipline and rebuke by you, and uh, they are loami to you right now, but one day they will be ami. And uh, Lord, we pray for that day. We pray that it would come soon. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, that was a lot there at the end, kind of, that's, that's the uh, fire hose, fire hydrant approach.